Revelation 15. If you have your Bible, you can open there, and that is where we will spend our time this evening. You should see on the screen a picture from 1946. That is the New York City World War II Victory Parade, which was held on January 12th when the Big Apple entertained the spirit of the entire nation. 13,000 men from the 82nd Airborne Division led the way down the streets of New York, including the historic African-American Parachute Battalion, the 555th, the Triple Nickel Association. By the way, that's an awesome name for a battalion, the Triple Nickel Association. The United States military were eager to show the citizenry the machines that they used to win the war. And so there were tanks driving through the streets of New York, self-propelled howitzers, formations of C-47s flying overhead. The parade marched along a four-mile stretch. The governor of New York was presiding over it. The current mayor of the city was there. The former mayors of the city who were still living were there. It was the largest victory parade that took place in the country when those men and women came home. Old Glory was whipping around in the winter wind everywhere you looked. It was remarkable joy. And yet across the Atlantic... In Nuremberg, Germany, it was a very different scene. On January 12, 1946, in Nuremberg, there was no parade. Instead, there was a tribunal. The International Military Tribunal took 177 war criminals, including 21 of the most important leaders and conspirators of Nazi Germany, and they put them on trial for their awful ethical transgressions in the war, for the crimes they committed against the human race, and especially for their heinous and unthinkable horror that they committed against the Jewish people. And over a period of about 11 months, there were 1,300 testimonies, 30,000 documents were put on the table for evidence, nearly 133,000 pages of transcripts. Of the 177 on trial, 142 were found guilty, 25 of them were executed for what they had done. Trials are looked at today by legal historians as a major contributor to codifying international law, ensuring that justice would not just be looked after by a few nations, but would be looked after by all the nations of the world. It was remarkable justice. In one place there was victory. The symbols of war had become the symbols of safety. There was peace and there was rejoicing. But in another place, there was judgment and there was justice. The fire of consequence had come to lick up the water. There was weight. There was impending death. And in that contrast between New York and Nuremberg in 1946, we get a small picture, just a small picture of the contrast here in Revelation 15 tonight. The fifth cycle of the book is beginning. The Cycles uh, are there on the table if you want to take it. Uh, What you have there on the table is not new. It's the same handout that we have uh, given out throughout the study. But as we start a new cycle, I thought that you might want to look at it and just mark where we are at. In one sense, what we see tonight in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 15 are a bit of a carryover from what we have seen in chapters 12 through 14. And I'll try to show you that in just a moment in verse 1. 
you'll see that we're getting a peek at those who have overcome the enemies of God through the Lamb. But in another sense, these verses tonight are looking to the next set of symbols to come that will explain judgment. We've had seven seals, we've had seven trumpets, and now in verses 5-8 through eight, we are introduced to seven bowl judgments. It is another look at the state of things during the church age. Another glimpse at how things are until the Lord Jesus returns. But before we get the plague of wrath, we get a look at the peace of redemption before the majesty of God. So Revelation 15, starting in verse 1, says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations." Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden uh, bowls full of wrath, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. God, guide us tonight through Your Word. You're the captain. Uh, we are the, the mates on the ship here. We do not know the way. You are the one that must chart the course for us. Lead us, Lord, the same way that you led your people uh, through the cloud and the flame, in the same way, Father, that uh, you led your son in his time on this earth, and he followed your will in the same way, Lord, that you led the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts as he was going to reach the Gentiles. Lead us tonight through your word. And reveal yourself to us, God, and, and help us to see both the joy and the justice and to respond uh, to you, Lord, in light of that. We love you, God. We need you to be able to uh, find our way through the, the jewels of truth that we have here before us. And we know that you'll guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Cycle 5 begins the same way cycle 4 did. If you look at Revelation 12:1, it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. We saw in Revelation 12 through 14 that the woman represents the people of God, represents the Old Testament church under the law, the New Testament church under Christ, under grace. Revelation 15, verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven. The fact that you see another sign in chapter 15, verse 1, lets us know we're moving on from the great epic battle in chapters 12 through 14, which really are the centerpiece of the entire book. And John lets us know the focus of this new cycle, this fifth cycle, right off the bat. We have seven angels with seven plagues. 
And these seven angels are given seven golden bowls full of God's wrath by the four living creatures in verse 7. A lot like the seals and the trumpets, the bowls of wrath that are held by the angels of plague are showing us the way that things will be in between the time of Jesus' ascension and Jesus' eventual return. Unlike the seals and the trumpets, the bold judgments seem to be specifically focused on the end. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. And once they are poured out, John says, the wrath of God is finished, meaning it's accomplished. There's no more to be done. And if there is no more of God's wrath to be poured out on the world, we know that it's the end. 2 Peter 3 verse 11 says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The transient things, the temporary things around us will be burned up. Once that's done, there will just be new heavens and new earth. There will just be righteousness. The Lord's wrath will have burned away every single impurity. So you can see that there is this intensified focus on the events surrounding the end with the bowls. They focus on that time of the dissolving of the temporary things that Peter speaks of in 2 Peter 3. Surely there's overlap with the seals and the trumpets because the seals and trumpets are showing us that entire age of the church within, which ends with judgment. So there's overlap. But if we want to use the instant replay analogy. In the seals and in the trumpets, Revelation is showing us how things will be through the entirety of the church age. But in the bowls, we're looking just at the end of the play. So if you're a football fan, it's like they show you the receiver catching the ball and you're like, mm, okay, I think I see what's going on there. And then they show you a different angle and you're like, okay, I'm still looking for the one where I really see the conclusion of the play. And then they zoom in on the feet and you see green in between the toes and the line and you're like, oh, we got a catch. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a catch, at least I think, because no football fan really knows what a catch is anymore, right? But you go, I think we got a catch here. In the bowls, you're seeing the toes. You're seeing the zoom in on the conclusion of the play. The Lord is showing us the way things will be in the end. But before we get there, we have a respite. We have a chance to take a break. We get an interlude. And we've seen God is good to do this throughout the book of Revelation. There's intense images again and again throughout the cycles. You are seeing what God's final judgment is going to be like. And so God is good as he is speaking through John to say, let me give him a rest. Let me let him breathe in between some of these cycles. And so after seeing the full picture in Revelation 2 and 3 of how Jesus' church is suffering and being tempted and being persecuted in the world, we get transported out of that to a heavenly scene of worship. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. After all of the seals are opened... And we see God's judgment in the world on display. Chapter 7 gives us this beautiful picture of worship 
And then chapter 8 begins with silence in heaven, a respite, a break. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, because remember in the seals, it's the sixth seal that gives us final judgment, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And now after three chapters of the dragon just viciously hunting God's bride in the wilderness of the world, hunting down the church, calling beasts out of the sea, calling the false prophet out of the land, deceiving the world into taking his mark, making war on the church, God gives us another break. God gives us another respite. And takes us back where we were in Revelation 4. Revelation 4, 6. And before the throne, meaning God's throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. You go to Revelation 15, verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. We are back at the throne of God in Revelation 15, verse 2. And what this does is it makes Revelation 15, this chapter, kind of a bridge. It connects the epic battle of Revelation 12 through 14 between God and the dragon to the bold judgments of Revelation 16. It's like my favorite bridge to drive on in the area. My favorite bridge around here, and and you, you have your pick if you live around here. It's like living in Pittsburgh, right? If you live up in Pittsburgh, you have your pick of what your favorite bridge is going to be. Well, my favorite bridge around here is the James River Bridge. I love to drive on the James River Bridge. Partly because I've never been stuck in traffic on the James River Bridge. So that's one of the reasons I like it so much. And I love how close it is to the water. You feel like you're driving on the water. One side of it touches what? Newport News. The other side of it touches Isle of Wight County. Right, takes you into Carrollton. It is a connector between two lands. If you've ever been to Carrollton, it's a very different land than Newport News. Right? It's a very, very different scene there. The people there are just as lost as the people in Newport News, but it's a different brand of lostness. You can tell you're in a different sort of town. But it's a connector between two lands. This text, chapter 15, is a connector. On one side of the bridge, we have overcomers. They're celebrating the joy of heaven. But on the other side of the bridge, there's a stark reminder that the world is in judgment and that the end is drawing near. So let's look closer at the joy of heaven before we look at the justice in verses 5 through 8. I know that usually people want to do bad news first and good news last, right? But the order of the text is the good news first. And so we're going to go with the order God gives us. The conquerors stand beside the sea of glass. They're singing the song of Moses, which is also the song of the Lamb. The picture we're supposed to have here is clear. Like Moses' generation stood on the shore of the Red Sea, celebrating God's great act of old covenant deliverance in the Exodus. Now those who have overcome in the Lamb stand at the sea of glass, celebrating God's greatest act of all, new covenant deliverance in Jesus Christ. In verses 5-8, through angels with plagues are about to judge the earth. The word plague should take you back to the day of Moses. Should take you back to the generation of Pharaoh as he opposed Moses and God poured out ten plagues on Egypt and on Pharaoh because he had enslaved God's people and refused to let them go and he challenged God. Pharaoh claimed to be uh, the sun god, Ra, incarnate. And so it was a direct challenge to the authority of God. 
And it all builds to the plague of the death of the firstborn. The final plague, when the Lord's destroyer enters the houses of the Egyptians and the firstborn sons die. And the Israelites are spared because they keep the Passover. They trust in the Lord's word to them. Exodus 12, verse 23 says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The writer of Hebrews spoke of it this way, By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. We saw the end of those who cast their lot with the dragon and his beasts last week. Brutal images where unbelievers are gathered as grapes, thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God, judged outside of the eternal city of heaven. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, meaning it covers the whole earth. The whole battlefield's covered in blood to the point that the horses are drowning. It is an awful scene. But those who are standing and singing in verses 2 through 4, These are the ones who trusted in the Lord's word and in the Lamb. These are the ones who did not bow down. They did not take the mark. They didn't go along with the world. They would not call Caesar God. They would not adopt the perverse sexual ethics around them at the risk of their lives, at the risk of not even being able to buy food in the marketplace. They would not take the mark. They would not go along with the world. And some of them even died for this. People like our brother Antipas. I know where you dwell, Jesus says, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. The martyrs who cry out for justice under the altar in Revelation 6, after the fifth seal is opened, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. The great William Tyndale. This is him. It's him and those like him. And for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What you see here in Revelation 15 is a picture of all the saints of God preparing to enjoy the freedom of eternity on the new earth, rejoicing over the victory they have in Christ the overcomer. Antipas has overcome. The martyrs have overcome. William Tyndale has overcome. And you and I have overcome in Christ. If you hold on to the end, if you don't take the mark, it's because of the grace of God in you. It's because you belong to Him and He does not lose one. And this will be you. No longer standing on Jordan's stormy banks, casting a wishful eye. No, you will be a part of the church triumphant, shouting a song of praise in Canaan's fair and happy land. 
So let's zoom in on the images here. Let's zoom in on the words. You have a sea of glass in verse 2 mingled with fire. I'll come back to the fire. Again, we've seen the sea of glass before in Revelation. In that heavenly worship scene in Revelation 4. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. There's no reason to think we're not dealing with the same sea of glass considering the fact that the same four living creatures are present, aren't they? They're there. They're delivering the bowls of wrath to the angels of plague, and so there's no reason to think that we're not looking at the same scene. Here, here the, the saints of God are before the throne of God. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of a sea of glass in the presence of living creatures that serves kind of as heaven's floor and earth's ceiling. Ezekiel 1.22, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystals spread out above their heads. In the Old Testament, the sea was a picture not of peace, not of tranquility, but of chaos. Isaiah 57, verse 20, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Revelation 13, where does the beast come from? It comes out of the chaos of the sea. And I saw the beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. But here in Revelation 15, the image of the sea is not one of chaos, it's one of peace. There's no chaos before the throne of God. There's peace before the throne of God. There is, there is the order of His governing rule. There's no rebellious beasts there trying to counterfeit his authority. The sea is glassy, giving it an idea of purity. It's clear, it's unpolluted, it's undefiled, which is a, a, a design characteristic, a design aesthetic of the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21.18, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. How in the world can pure gold be like clear glass? Clearly, these are not literal terms. These are terms that are meant to convey to us the absolute, holy, righteous, sinless environment of heaven. And that's where the overcomers are. They stand on or beside the sea of glass. The Greek preposition, epi, actually lends itself more to them standing on the sea as opposed to beside the sea. Tom Schreiner comments on this. Nevertheless, the saints are standing without harm on the sea of glass. That's the preposition epi here probably means on. So, the New King James Bible, if you have one, or the Christian Standard Bible, if you have one, it's going to say on instead of beside, and it is right on when it does that. The ESV leaves us with a little to be desired here in the way that it translates it. Funny enough, Tom Schreiner, that quote from him is from the ESV commentary set, so I don't know. But as much as you and I might like going to the beach, and I'm growing, Okay, I'm growing. The ocean itself is terrifying. It's terrifying. There are places in the ocean, there are depths of the ocean, that more people have been to the moon than, than, than those deepest parts of the ocean. Think about that for a second. That's true. More people have been to the moon than the deepest parts of our ocean. It is terrifying down there. There's, there's fish going around with little lights hanging over their head and big sharp teeth, and they'll rip your throat out. You don't go swimming down there. You wouldn't live anyways, right? And so that's the sort of chaos 
that the sea represents in the Old Testament. It's terrifying. That's why the beast comes up out of the terrible chaos of the sea. But in heaven, the saints stand on that which used to be chaotic. They stand on the pure sea of glass in a state of total peaceful praise before the throne of God. They stand on a sea of glass in the presence of the Father as those who said no to the world and yes to the Lamb. They have overcome. They hold harps in their hands. You see that in verse 2. Very similar to the scene of heavenly praise back in chapter 14. Then I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. That's also a scene that depicts the church triumphant in heaven. And John says that they have these voices that sound like harps. Well, here in 15... They've gone from having voices that sound like harps to they're literally holding harps and they're playing them. Harps are instruments of praise. They are stringed instruments that are designed to sound heavenly, designed to sound ethereal. And as they are played in the Psalms, they are played to celebrate the praise of God. You play the harp to the praise of God. So that's what they're doing here. They're praising God by playing the harp. It's a reversal of what takes place in Psalm 137. In Psalm 137, the people are in exile in Babylon and their harps are in the trees. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth sang, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Imagine getting rounded up and, and, and you're in prison and, and your, your captor says to you, sing a mighty fortress is our God. Sing how great is our God. Sing holy, 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 so I can mock you. And so I can make fun of your God that doesn't exist in your little songs. Would you sing for him? Of course not. So they hung their harps in the trees. But here, the harps are in the trees no more. God's people aren't on the run in the wilderness anymore. They're not being hunted by Satan anymore. They've overcome. They are in heaven. They are standing on the sea of glass and their harps are in their hands and they are plucked around the throne of God by the fingers of conquerors for His glory. Along with the playing of the harps, they sing. They sing the song of Moses and they sing the song of the Lamb. Understand, these are not two different songs. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are the same song. Moses' song is referring to the song that Israel lifted up to God on the shore after the Red Sea swallowed up Pharaoh's army. Exodus 15.1 says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord rescued His people, Israel, by judging Egypt. But understand, the only reason that Israel is not judged right alongside them is because God has a merciful plan of salvation. They're just as sinful as the Egyptians. But He gives them the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, he tells them to purify the church. And he says, put your old way of living away. Put it to the side. Get rid of it. And the motivation for them to do this 
is that now the ultimate Passover lamb has been given to the people of God. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So all those Passover lambs appointed uh, that, that were killed in the appointed night of the judgment in Egypt, all the Passover lambs that were slaughtered between the generation of Moses and the generation of John the Baptist, it had all been leading to the ultimate sacrifice of the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ at Calvary. And so you can see the parallels here. God rescued Israel from slavery with a servant named Moses while Egypt is judged. But it's a shadow of what we have here in Revelation 15. For here we have God rescuing all His children from a worse sort of slavery, a spiritual slavery that has the ability to trap you in eternal destruction. And they're delivered by a greater servant of God, Jesus Christ, a more perfect Moses, while the world is judged. So the song of Moses is the song of the Lamb because the song of the Lamb is the fulfillment of the song of Moses. You can't finish the song of Moses without singing the song of the Lamb because the song of Moses was pointing to the Lamb. Another way of saying this would, would be to say that in the song of Moses and in the song of the Lamb, you're hearing the full sound of the praise of God's people. You're hearing the Old Testament church under the law lifting up the song of Moses, but you're also hearing the New Testament church, the church under grace, lifting up the song of the Lamb. But don't get it twisted. The Old Testament church, they're still singing the song of the Lamb too because it wasn't about Moses. The law was a schoolmaster to lead them to Christ. And so, the song of Moses truly is the song of the Lamb, and it's what they're all singing. One song singing about the full history of God's saving work in the midst of His people. Law to grace. In verse 3, the song is made up of two couplets. They move in the same way. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. And they are statements that can only be made about God. You can't make these statements about anybody else. I don't know about you, I've seen people do some amazing things in my life. People have done some really great things for me. But there's never been a point where somebody did something in front of me or for me where my response was, you're God. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to give my whole life to you. I'm going to follow you everywhere you go. If you said that to somebody, they would say, you got a problem <laughs> because they would know they are not God, right? You don't say that about me. These are statements you only make about the Lord. Only the Lord does things where you see it and you go, I got to worship you. I got to give you everything that I am. Only the Lord is truly the king of all the nations. Nobody else can claim that ownership. Only the Lord is totally and utterly right and just in everything that he does. Verse 4 presents a question and provides an answer. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's a question that makes use of the tool of Hebrew parallelism. To fear the Lord is to glorify the Lord. To glorify the Lord is to fear the Lord. There are two train tracks. And the steam engine of worship barrels along them when somebody is exalting the Lord in spirit and in truth. If you revere God, you will glorify God. And if you're glorifying God, it's because you revere Him. 
And God is worthy of this reverence. And God is worthy of this glory because not only is He the unique holder of the descriptions in verse 3, He's holy. He's other. There's no one like Him. And He is the object of the worship of the redeemed in the nations. He has revealed His powerful and praiseworthy character in His righteous acts. What else would the overcomers in heaven do but play their harps and belt out a symphony of praise with their voices? During the Civil War, there was a woman named Sarah Ballou who received some letters that she had been waiting for for a very long time. They came in 1861, and they were from her husband, Sullivan. Sullivan was a private in the Union Army. In the letters, Sullivan told Sarah all about the war, about the uncertainties on the battlefield. He said his love for his country was unwavering. He loved his country more than he ever had. He was passionate about defending the Union. There was nothing that shined in the letter more than the love that he had for Sarah, Ballou, and the children that they had brought into this world together. But Sullivan never made it home. If he did, his letters probably would not have become famous. They would have been lost in anonymity. But as history played out, he was killed one week later in the first battle of Bull Run. And so his letters became famous. They became this tragic record of love and patriotism during our nation's darkest time. In many ways, we are like Private Sully Ballou. We're wearied from this world. Our backs are weathered from carrying the crosses that the Lord has given to us. Our feet are calloused from standing for Christ and refusing to bow to the beast, refusing to take the mark. Our hands are are cut and bleeding from the rugged work of getting into the yoke with Christ, keeping on the narrow path. Paul gives an apt description of those who live truly on adventure with Christ representing Him in the world, clinging to Him, doing the things He's called them to do. And the way that he describes it is, he says, you're like a jar of clay. A fragile, ordinary, earthen vessel. Just a jar. You walked by it in the marketplace, you'd walk by it a thousand times, never take a second glance. But in that jar that, that you are, you have this treasure. This precious treasure that God has given you, that is, He has entrusted to you, and it is the eternal gospel. And so Paul, speaking about this, says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I mean, we're jars of clay. It's like we're one small teeter away from falling down and smashing to pieces. And yet, notice what Paul says. Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but not crushed, not abandoned, not forsaken. These earthen vessels, these jars of clay, they have not been destroyed. Though we limp along, we have not been and will not be gunned down in this battle. They could take our lives, but they cannot take our souls. And Paul is so sure of this that he calls on Corinth to recognize the present sufferings of this life are nothing when compared with the glory to come. Now before I read this, I know that some of you are going to go, brother, you're 38, like you, you really haven't suffered the way I have. You don't know what it's like to bury a parent. You don't know what it's like to bury a child or a spouse. And that's true. 
lot of you have experienced a lot of suffering that your pastor has not, and I'm not eager for it. But understand that I didn't write 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul did, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to do it. This man was shipwrecked. This man spent a, a day and night in the open sea. We just talked about how terrifying that would be. This man was beaten with rods. This man took the lashes of the whip that Jesus took on multiple occasions. This man was on the run in cities. This man was on the run in countries. He had friends that he loved abandon him. He had friends that he loved die in the ministry. Paul knew what it was to suffer. Paul knew what it was to suffer more than most of us do. I mean, he really took it in his time on this earth. He really bore some crosses. And so understand that the man who writes these words, he knows pain. And he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I love that. As we're falling apart, as we're growing new moles, as our, our, our hair is growing in places we don't want it to, and it's stopping the growth in places we would like it to continue, as, as our bones break, as our muscles tear, as we lose the ability to walk, as our lungs stop producing the air that we need, inside God's just making us stronger and stronger through His Word. I love this. And Paul says, for this momentary, uh, this light momentary affliction, I mean, that's the part people stop at. And you go, whoa, wait a second, don't call my suffering momentary and light. I mean, you don't know what I'm going through, but remember, this man has been through it. He's saying that about what he's been through shipwrecks and beatings and all that stuff, he says, it's just a light momentary affliction. I mean, he talks about it the way that most people talk about a cold. He says it's preparing us, uh, for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is a pearl coming in the eternal weight of glory that makes all the suffering just look like a little grain of sand. Just brush it off. And so while there are aspects of Sullivan Ballou's story that we identify with, understand, church, the story of Sullivan Ballou ultimately is not your story because we will make it home from this war. And when we do, what you're going to find is that you have overcome, not in your strength, not in your wisdom, but in the strength and in the wisdom and in the power of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And one day, the chaotic things that have threatened us they will dissolve like a clump of ice in the middle of a white-hot desert. The ceiling of the earth will be under our feet, as will cancer, as will pride, as will the sin that so easily entangles, as will abuse, as will blasphemy, as will de eating disorders and mental health problems and poverty and persecution and governments that hate the church and false prophets that speak lies and the dragon himself. It will all be crushed under our feet. And you need to look to this. When you are discouraged, and when you are scared, when you are thinking about giving up, when you're thinking about giving in, when sin seems alluring and worth more than Christ, when you're ready to sacrifice your integrity and your holiness for pleasure, when you're ready to compromise truth for approval, when you start to think about life and death like an unbeliever, when you are despairing over current events, this is when you need to stop looking at the enemies of God, stop looking at the chart on your health app, stop looking at the news, and look to the eternal. This is what Paul tells you to do. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Peter told us it's all going to dissolve. 
The things that are unseen are eternal. Church, you will stand on the sea before the throne of God. You will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Your fallen fingers will be glorified, plucking the taut strings of the potter's praise. You will conquer the beast and the number of his name, and you will do it all in Christ. But with that said, when you go back to verse 2, there is this little reminder in this beautiful scene in heaven. And this is not the fate of everyone who lives. There's a little hint in the glory of heaven that there is judgment on the earth, for the sea of glass is mingled with fire. Remember, the idea here is that heaven's floors are ceiling. It's a prophetic picture from Ezekiel 1. While there's glory above, where the overcomers stand and praise the Lord before His throne, there is judgment beneath. The glorious praise of God is seen in heaven, but the glorious justice of God is taking place on the earth. This idea is backed up by what we see in verses 5-8. through Seven angels with seven plagues who emerge from the sanctuary of the tent of witness. We have seen God's sanctuary open up before in Revelation. It signaled judgment then as it does now. Revelation 11, verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. When did that happen? At the blowing of the seventh trumpet. At final judgment. So as the seven angels emerge here, that's the same thing that's happening. They are bringing history to its conclusion. As verse 1 said, with them the wrath of God is finished. They're carrying out the judgments of Christ. We know that because of how they dress. Pure, bright linen, golden sashes. It's the same priestly clothing that's worn by Christ at the beginning of the book. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. They're dressed like Jesus because they represent Jesus. They're carrying out the judgments of Jesus. Just like the angels who were gathering the grape harvest in chapter 14. The four living creatures that we saw around God's throne in chapters 4 and 5, we saw them also in the heavenly scene in chapter 7. They're here again. They give the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who is eternal. The number seven is significant. Numbers are not wasted in Revelation. Seven's a good number in Revelation. It's God's perfect number. So we have seven angels with seven bowls. They carry seven plagues, just in case there's any confusion about what they're coming to do here. They're bringing God's judgment. The mention of the plagues lets us know they're doing the same business that was done in Egypt during the days of Moses. This is judgment. And the number seven lets us know it will be complete and perfect judgment, complete and perfect wrath being fully and finally poured out in chapter 16. When we get there, you will see the judgment that was partial in the trumpets, it's not partial anymore. It's exhaustive. It is global. Verse 8 even shows that to us. The sanctuary is filled with smoke from God's glory and power. And nobody can go in until the wrath is completely poured out. Meaning, God's going to finish His work. All of it. Every drop of His wrath will be exercised and satisfied. Nobody can uh, stop that. Nobody can halt it. 
Job understood that in Job 42, verse 2, when he said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And that includes God's wrathful purpose of justice in which he will bring every work of every human soul into his courtroom and they will account for their lives. If you have not surrendered to the Lamb, if you have not received his righteousness by faith, and you will pay for your own sins on that day, the mingled fire in the sea of glass, the holy judgment of God will represent your end. You will not be on the shore with the conquerors. You will be under the waters of his judgment with Pharaoh's army. Turn from your sin and repent tonight. God's wrath hasn't fallen yet. Heaven is open to you tonight. We see heaven open in this text. You don't want to see heaven open in that way. That, that's not the open heaven that you want to see. When, when heaven is opened up in the way it's opened in Revelation 15, the time of judgment has arrived. The time for repentance has come to an end. But tonight, heaven's not open in that way. It's not open in judgment to you. It is open in grace to you. Christ holds open the door of heaven. He invites you in by faith. Say no to the world and say no to your sin and say yes to the truth of God and the love of God which has come to you in the person of Jesus Christ as He has died for you and He has rose again from the dead. Put your trust in Him. For the man who tried to destroy God's creation with Adolf Hitler, there was no getting off of death row. That is not the case for you tonight. We've seen two scenes, New York and Nuremberg, heaven and hell. Reward and judgment. Will you receive the great treasure of praising God with your feet on heaven's floor, or will you rebel against God and put yourself in danger of the fire of his judgment which will fall from earth's ceiling? It's eternal joy or it's eternal justice. There's only one sensible choice. Don't let the temporary things of this world fool you tonight into thinking that this is all there is. Look past the transient to the eternal tonight. For the days are short. The time is coming when the wrath of God will be finished. The last thing I'll say is this. It can be finished for you now. That's the great thing that Jesus offers to you. Understand that. The wrath of God can be finished for you now. Poured out on Christ. For anyone who trusts in him will never taste the wrath of the bulls. King James doesn't use the term bull, uses the term vile. Well, Christ took the vials of judgment and he drank it up. Trust in the lamb and join in his song. And let the wrath of God be finished for you in Jesus tonight. Father God, I thank you for the eternal joy that is promised to us as your people. Lord, next week we will see your judgment. Next week there is no joy and justice. It's just justice. There's no New York. It's just Nuremberg next week. Tonight, Lord, is the night of salvation. If, if there's anybody here, they've been filling their heads with knowledge of you, but their hearts are empty of love for you. Call them to repent of their sin and to trust in you tonight. To be forgiven tonight. 
so that they could come and sit and listen to your word next week with absolute peace that the wrath of God is finished for them already. Father, again, I, I think about people that do not know you and that are lost tonight. And the reality of this text is not lost on me. I don't think it's lost on the people in this room. Who you have in our orbit, Lord, who is in danger of the judgment that will fall from earth's ceiling, the fire that will fall and dissolve the, the earth. Who is in danger, Lord? It's people we know, it's people we love. And Father, I pray that we would be like fishermen, obsessed with pulling the fish out of the river, that we would be obsessed with seeing the lost transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Help us, Lord, to be compelled. Uh, break our hearts if they're not. If we're going in and out of stores and we're going about our days and we don't think about the fact that the people around us are in eternal danger, Lord, break our hearts for them. Help us to start seeing the lostness around us and then to do something about it, to tell them and tell them about the joy that is available to them and that the wrath of God can be finished for them if they would trust in Jesus Christ. I love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.